Well, it's good to be together and uh, thankful for the opportunity this semester to focus our hearts and minds on Christ. You know, if you are a, a believer, um, certainly you don't focus on Christ as much as you ought to, but you do have a desire to know and love to gaze upon Christ. Uh, John Owen described believers like a compass, you know, a compass that the needle always tends to come back to true north, and that as believers, our hearts are always going to come back to the love of Christ and to a focus on Him. And, and certainly, we live in a, a world where the, the world distracts us from that focus, our own hearts distract us from that focus, um, but that is our, our chief desire and our goal, and hopefully this semester will be uh, helpful to that end. You know, I was, I was reminded this week of, of John 17, 24, where Jesus prayed this. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. One of the reasons why Christ saved us and why he is eager to, for us to be with him is that we can more clearly see his glory. You know, in this life, we, we don't see him perfectly. You know, we've seen in 1 John how when we, when we finally see him exactly as he is, we will become like him. Uh, but we do behold him in, in his word. And as we do that, we are transformed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so our hope this semester is not simply that we are reminded of truth about Christ, but that we respond to that truth and to the person of Christ in, in worship of him and in a, a pursuit of living for him and increasing likeness to his character. As Brandon mentioned, this semester we'll consider themes like the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the work of Christ. And, and this morning we want to begin with the superiority or the supremacy of Christ. Now when we Think of the idea of superiority or supremacy. You know, there's a, a lot of context where we might use those. One, one where that's common is, is military context. You know, you, you hear talk of, of air superiority over a particular area or air supremacy. You know, the, the reality that there is total unhindered dominance of an airspace, that, that it's completely controlled, or, or just general military superiority over another entity or country. You may remember Operation Desert Storm and uh, the, the Gulf War of the early 1990s that was one of the most amazing displays of military superiority in, in recent history. You may recall how after Saddam Hussein had invaded the little nation of Kuwait that, that U.S.-led coalition, coalition forces responded in force and one of the, the leaders of the coalition forces was a man named uh, Norman Schwarzkopf who served as the commander of those coalition forces in that region and, and he famously said this, he said, yesterday Iraq had the fourth largest army in the world. Today, they have the second largest army in Iraq. That was a, a picture of and a description of how dominant the, the U.S.-led coalition forces were in, in that particular conflict. 
And while that was a, an impressive display of military superiority, it pales in comparison to the supremacy of Christ. All of Scripture exalts Christ. All of Scripture helps to direct us to the person and work of Christ. And, and yet there are two books in the New Testament particularly devoted to this theme. One of them is the book of Hebrews, which, which highlights in the first part of that book the superiority of Christ's person, that he is superior to angels and to Moses and the Aaronic priests. And then it transitions to the superiority of his work over the Old Testament sacrificial system. But I didn't think we had time to study the entire book of Hebrews this morning, so instead I invite you to turn with me to the other New Testament book focused on this theme, the book of Colossians a book about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. You know, Paul was writing to the church at Colossae in this letter that was at risk of being influenced by false teachers. There was a, uh, a common heresy in the early church, that of, of Gnosticism, and, um, and some form of that was um, was prevalent in this area and, and even tempting those in this church. And much ink has been spilled trying to identify the exact nature of what the specific Colossian heresy was. And there's clues throughout the book. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't focus on exegeting the heresy. He doesn't explain everything that was wrong with the heresy, although he addresses everything that was wrong with it. Rather, he exalts Christ. He holds up the truth, the truth about Jesus and his supremacy and his sufficiency to combat all of those errors. And, and really chapter 1 verses 15 to 20 is the, the capstone of that exaltation of Christ. And, and so I want us to spend time together this morning looking at this text and then I want us to, to step out from that passage into some other parts of Colossians, just to be reminded of how we are to respond to the supremacy of Christ. Let's begin first with the reality of Christ's supremacy in verses 15 to 20. Follow along as I read verse 15. It says, he, referring back to Christ, his beloved son from verse 13, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I want us to notice three aspects of Christ's supremacy that are clear in this text. The first is his supremacy over creation in verses 15 to 17. 
He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. As we think of Christ's supremacy over creation, it's important that we begin where Paul does with the reality that Christ is separate from or distinct from creation. Now these two phrases in verse 15, the image of the invisible God and firstborn of all creation have been grossly misunderstood in in demeaning and diminishing the person of Christ. That's not what they do at all. The first of these phrases, he is the image of the invisible God, speaks to the reality that Christ is the one who has manifested, who has made God known to us because he is in fact God. This word image has a a, a range of meanings. You, You know that Uh, Verses in scripture like man is made in the image of God doesn't mean we are exactly like God. It means that we have some resemblance to God in certain aspects. But this word can also mean that it's something that has complete likeness to and, and is displaying the reality of something. Clearly, that's what Paul means, that Christ is in the complete likeness of God, for he is in fact God. In just a a few verses that we read already, verse 19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And in Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's what Paul is referring to here. Now, why didn't he just say Christ is God, which is, which is true, that he is, is the second person of the Trinity, of, of the triune God? Well, this image language speaks to the fact that Jesus is the one who has revealed God. He's not just saying that Christ is God, he is saying that, but he's saying that Christ has revealed, made visible that which is invisible, namely God. See, God is spirit. Even in the Old Testament, there was the, the, God forbade the people of Israel from doing what? From making an image or a likeness of God. Why? Well, because nothing could accurately picture and represent God to us because of his greatness and glory and grandeur. But God is spirit and could not be seen. There's only one way that we could see God, and that was through Christ. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is God come in the flesh to reveal the Father to us. We see this clearly in in John's writing. You're familiar with John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Verse 18, what is this done? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him. He's made him known to us. So when Jesus was walking on this earth, he could say things like uh, John 12, 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. Or when Philip asked about seeing the Father, he said... He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the image 
of the invisible God. He has made God known because he is God come in the flesh. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We won't study the whole book, but this first portion of Hebrews is so rich in this regard. Look at chapter 1 of Hebrews, just the first couple of verses speaks of this reality as well. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, God's revelation in the Old Testament was, was varied through the prophets as he communicated the truth to them. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The, the ultimate, complete comprehensive word from God is his son because he is the exact representation of God because he is God. Verse 3 says he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Christ has revealed God as God. He is the image of the invisible God. Not only that, it says he is the firstborn of all creation. Again, some have misunderstood this phrase to mean that Jesus is the first created one. You know, when I talk about Anna, my oldest daughter, as my firstborn, she's the first of multiple children who are born. And and this word can be used of that, but that is clearly, again, not the context here. And And Paul is not saying that Christ was the first created one. See, this term can be used in relation to time, like firstborn, the one who was born first, but it also can be used in relationship to to rank, to simply mean the, the preeminent one. Psalm 89, 27 puts it this way, speaking of Messiah, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's not making him the the firstborn child. He's not switching the order. He says, I will make him the highest one. That's what this phrase is referring to, that Christ is the highest, the preeminent one over all of creation. You see, it's related to that idea of firstborn in the sense that typically in this culture, the firstborn was the one who received the inheritance, the one who had the, the most benefits and blessings that came. But even in Old Testament history, we recognize that wasn't always the case. It wasn't just about that time. It was God's, God's decree in that way. You may have lots of kids as I do, and, and the firstborn may not always be your favorite. That's okay. No, not really. I mean, it is okay to not be the firstborn. I was not the firstborn either. Uh, but, so he, he's saying that Christ is not the, the first created one, but he is the preeminent one of all creation. And again, in the, the New, in New American Standard translates that as firstborn of, leaving some of the, the, the decision of what is this relationship between firstborn and all creation, this this is a, uh, a genitive construction. For those of you that like grammar, often we use that for possessive, but it can refer to a, a variety of relationships between the two, two words. I think the NIV and the New King James get the sense right when they translate it, firstborn over all creation. 
One writer says this phrase provides an additional description of the Son by pointing to his supreme status above all created beings. See, he's not saying Jesus was the first created one. He's saying Jesus was not a created one. He's above and supreme over all creation. See, men, we need to remember and recognize that there are really two categories of beings in the universe. There is all of that which is created, and there is the creator. Jesus is separate from the creation. He is distinct from creation. He is not created. He is God, eternal God, supreme over all creation. Christ is separate from creation, and and that's because, secondly, he is the source of creation He can't be the the first created one because verse 16 says, For by him, what? All things were created. Everything has come into being by Christ. For by him all things were created. What all things? Both things in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything was created by Christ. Things on the heavens and earth, we're familiar with that language, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our entire universe was created by him. Created all the things that are visible and all the things that are invisible, not just microscopic things, but but the spirit world that we cannot see, that's likely what he's referring to when he says whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all the different spiritual beings, the angels that were created as well. Christ made all of those things. All those things were created, as it says at the beginning of that verse, by him, and all those things have been created, as it says towards the end of that verse, through him. What's the the distinction there? You know, we can't be dogmatic, but it it seems that it's both referring to the fact that it it has come from him in the sense that all of the the wisdom for creation, all the, the energy for creation, the power for creation has come through Christ and and it was through his agency. He's the one doing the work of creation in concert with the other members of the Trinity. You know, the Father really functioning as the, the architect, the, big, the, the designer. Christ is the, the foreman, the one who is implementing that through the Spirit, who's the, the laborer actually doing it. All things were created by him and through him. And why this creation? Why did he create? We see at the end of verse 16, it was all for him. All things created for his glory. We see in Scripture that creation declares his glory. The things that Christ has made shout out how powerful and wonderful and awe-inspiring God is. And creation's ultimate purpose is for his glory. That's why he has made us. Christ is separate from creation. He is God, the exact representation of his nature, the the supreme one over creation, and he is the source of creation. And then lastly, we see Christ as the sustainer of creation. He didn't just create and then walk away 
Verse 17 says he is before all things. He's the one who existed prior to creation as the eternal God. And in him all things hold together, or all things endure. Christ is the one who upholds this world, who, who maintains this world. You know, even with all the, the scientific advances of our day, there is still question about the, the fundamental reality of, of what holds even atoms and, and molecules together. How, how do we function and stay in, in, in place where we ought to be, every little, little particle? The answer is through the power of Christ. As Hebrews 1.3 said, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. In Christ is supreme over creation. He is exalted above creation as the one who has created and the one who sustains his creation and who did so and does so for his own glory. When we walk out in the morning on a, early on a Saturday and we see a, a beautiful sunrise or we're driving home and we see a beautiful sunset or you go to some part of the country that's nice to look at other than Texas like Colorado and you see the beautiful mountains or you go out farther away from the city and see the stars or you go to the coast and you see the, the amazing waves of the ocean and, and you say, wow. And you feel so small. You remember that that creation, as amazing as it is, pales in comparison to the one who has created it. The one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Christ is supreme over creation. And he continues that he is supreme. We see, secondly, the supremacy of Christ over the church. Christ didn't just create all things generally. He has specially loved those who would be his own, the church. Verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is head of of the body, the church. This idea of Christ as head of the church is, is woven throughout the New Testament, building on that image that is common, that metaphor of the, of the church as the body of Christ. Your body doesn't do so well without its head, right? Your head plays a lot of roles in relationship to your body, just as Christ does to the church. The, the foundational idea of Christ as head of the church is his authority, that he is the sovereign Lord of the church. It's his church. He is the one who owns the church. Ephesians chapter 5, if you turn over a, a couple pages connects this idea of the headship of Christ in, in a, a variety of ways in verse 
23, it says, For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. See, there's a connection between the fact that Christ has purchased the church. He's the the one who owns the church and is therefore head of the church because it's his. And verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives to be their husbands and everything. The church is subject to Christ as the head. We come under the authority of the one who has every right to tell us how to think and how to live. Christ is the authority over the church, the sovereign Lord. Ephesians 1 puts it this way, verse 22 and 23, that He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. All things are in subjection to Christ, including the church. Christ is the sovereign Lord of the church. We see this in Revelation as he walks among the the churches, as he gives evaluation to the churches. Christ is the boss. He's the head. He tells us what to do. That's why as a church, we don't just sit around and say, hey, what do we want to do as a church? We say, what does Christ command us to do as a church? He's the one who gets to to determine what and how we do. But this idea of, of head is not simply that he is the authority. It also is a reminder that he is the source of the life and growth of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about it this way. It says, we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies grows, uh, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In Colossians 2 verse 18, it, it speaks of how the, uh, um, we, we are holding fast, to be holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. See, Christ as the head is the one who is the source of life and growth in the church. We see that here in in Colossians as well, where it says he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I think he's still speaking here in the context of Christ's relationship to the church. He's the beginning, not not simply restating the fact that he was before all things, that he's eternal, although that's true, but he is the one who initiated. He's the one who who began the church. He's the source of the church. It's his idea, and it's through his sacrifice that we have been redeemed into his body. And it says he is the firstborn from the dead. Again, this is not speaking of the fact that Jesus was simply the first one raised from the dead. That's not true. If you read your Bible, you know that there were others who had been raised from the dead before Christ. So he's clearly not saying he was the first one raised from the dead. What's he saying? He was the the preeminent one, the exalted one who was raised from the dead. Christ's resurrection Defeating and and conquering death is what makes our life possible, both our spiritual life in Christ and our eternal resurrection life, defeating death. 
It is Christ who is the source of the life and growth of the church and each member of the church. He is supreme over the church. He is the one who who is responsible for the church as its authority and the one who has made the church even possible through his life. And he is that why, verse 18 concludes, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We'll come back to this in, in a moment, but the reality is that, that Christ as the supreme one over creation and then the supreme one over the church is not simply a stated fact that's true, it is that, but it is a stated fact that is intended to lead to something and will lead to something, and that is that Christ will be the supreme one. He will be treated as such that he will, in fact, have first place in everything. Christ is supreme over creation. We see he is supreme over the church, and then Thirdly, we see the supremacy of Christ in salvation. Look at verse 19 and 20. He continues, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 19 says it, It was the Father's pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, referring to the the reality that Christ is the God-man, the fullness of God dwelling in human form. We have just celebrated Christmas, that reality. You know, this this is reflecting the fact that our salvation required the incarnation of Christ. You and I could not be saved apart from God becoming man. And it was the pleasure of God, it was God's delight for that to happen. For God, fully God, the second person of the Trinity, to come as a man. To be the exact representation, as we already saw, the visible image of the invisible God come in the flesh, retaining every aspect of his deity and yet taking to himself full humanity. But it wasn't simply the incarnation that was necessary for our salvation. Our salvation also required the atonement of Christ, which is what verse 20 says, that through him, this Emmanuel, God with us, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It took more than God coming as a man for us to be reconciled to God, for us to have peace with God, to be saved. It took his death, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. Why does it say the the blood? The blood is is the, the representation of life, Leviticus reminds us. It was his life poured out in violent death on the cross that the atonement for our sins that brings peace with God. 
Now, notice in this verse it says to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You know, there is a, a, a personal reality to reconciliation with God that is highlighted in the next couple of verses when he gets very personal and says things like, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So, so Paul is not just thinking generally here, he's thinking very specifically of every individual who has responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. But there is a, a general aspect of, of Christ's reconciliation. He's made reconciliation possible for all. And, and you read elsewhere, like in, in Romans, of creation, longing to, to be made right and to be made new. And so even, even the, the creation is eager for the, the fruit of, of, uh, of reconciliation in eternity. This is not saying that all will ultimately be saved you understand that that peace comes in multiple ways. You know, it can come through a willing surrender in a conflict. That's repenting and believing the gospel. That's us waving the white flag and saying, God, you are God. and Christ, you are Lord, and, and you are my only hope. Peace also comes through conquest. And, and it's true that, as Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow. Some will do so willingly in this life and some will do so having rebelled against Christ for the entirety of this life, but overwhelmed by his supremacy and authority. Christ is supreme. He is superior. He's the exalted, preeminent one over all of creation. He is exalted and preeminent over, over the church. He, he is the Lord of the church and the source of life for the church. And he is supreme in our salvation. He is the sole reason why we can be saved. How do we respond to that reality? I want us to consider briefly a number of responses to Christ's supremacy that Paul highlights in this book as he is holding up for us the exalted Christ. In God's providence, I, I thought this was going to happen last Saturday, so I've had an extra week to chew on these things, so I've added a few more. So uh, There's only 10 of them that we'll cover quickly, <laughs> briefly. The first response to Christ's supremacy is that we would willingly submit to the Lordship of Christ. You cannot think about the person of Christ and his supremacy over creation and the church and, and in salvation and say, well, I, I think I'd like to be in charge of my own life. No, this is the response of every believer to the lordship of Christ. As Romans 10, 9 says, you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? As Lord. You acknowledge he's the Lord. He's the master this is why Jesus said, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's what it means to come to Christ. But it's a dominant attitude of each believer as well. Look back at chapter 1, just briefly. He's, he's praying for these saints that he loves, even though he had likely not interacted personally with them. And, and he prays in verse 9 that that they would come to understand, the, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding why 
Verse 10, so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. See, the fundamental perspective of every believer is to be that. It's to say, I want to walk worthy of my Lord. I want to walk in a way that is consistent with him. I want to acknowledge his lordship. And so my goal is to do what? It is to please him in everything. He is my master. It doesn't matter what I want. It matters what he wants. And what I want is what he wants. We willingly submit to the lordship of Christ. Second response is to eagerly live for the glory of Christ. We saw in verse 18, why, is, why is, are these things true? What is the goal of this? It's that he himself will come to have first place in everything. What does that mean? Does it mean that you know, Christ will win every marathon and Christ will, will be the, the, the boss of every workplace and in, in that sense of first place. No, it means that everything is centered upon him and his exaltation. Man, that should be our response to the supremacy of Christ is that we say life is no longer about the spotlight shining on me. It's not about me getting any glory or recognition or honor or praise. It's about shining the spotlight instead on Christ, the Supreme One. Not centered on our own exaltation, but living intentionally for the glory of Christ. A third response is that of continually hoping in the work of Christ. I mentioned he, he transitions from this passage to the, the personal reality of our reconciliation in verses 21 and following. He says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's the testimony of every single person in this room. And yet if you are in Christ, he's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. When we acknowledge and recognize the supremacy of Christ, we will continually hope in the work of Christ. You will not move away from the hope of the gospel. You will continue to reflect on the fact that the only reason you have a right standing before God, you have hope of reconciliation and eternity with him is because of the gospel. You won't become proud. You won't start thinking you can earn something with God. No, you will consistently come back to and dwell on the reality that it is only through the work of Christ that we have hope. Then that's, that's our assurance, ultimately, that Paul is giving us there, is that, that we are clinging to the gospel. We are not moved away from the hope of what Christ has done. A fourth reality in response is we will joyfully suffer for the sake of Christ. If Christ is, in fact, what Paul has described him as, he is the supreme one, then it is our joy to suffer for him. Verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Jesus was willing to suffer 
for us, Paul was willing to suffer for the body of Christ, for those for whom Christ died. He was eager to suffer even if it was uh, of significant consequence to himself. He says he does so in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What's Paul saying there? Well, he's not saying that there was something insufficient in Christ's sufferings, but his point is Christ is Christ is no longer here. We get to suffer as his representatives now. We get to be the ones who suffer for Christ in his, in his place. In many ways, Christ suffered in our place on the cross. Now we as his body left on this planet have the joy of suffering in his place. The, the world can't get to Christ, but they can get to us. And so we suffer. I mean, we have lived in a culture in recent decades that has had a respect for those who follow Christ. You know, different parts of our country certainly have, have looked different, but, but it has been a respectable thing to say, oh, I, I go to church. A, a respectable thing, at least to some degree, to be, uh, to be a, a follower of Christ in the midst of a culture that still had uh, a variety of residual impacts from the, the Christian worldview. That is increasingly changing. That was not the culture that Paul was in and, and is not the culture that we increasingly are in. And, and so there is the reality that we will increasingly suffer for Christ. And he is worth it because he is the supreme one. He is the one who is exalted above all, and so it is our joy to suffer for the sake of Christ. We're also to boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ, the truth of who he is and what he has done. Paul says in verse 25 of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul says, I was entrusted with a mystery, something that had not been revealed previously, and it's, it's the glory of the gospel of Christ in you, this reality of our salvation, and we, and we proclaim him. Man, we ought to be motivated to be ambassadors for Christ, to boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ, the truth of who he is and of all that he has done. Sixth reality is we must carefully guard the truth of Christ. As I mentioned, Paul was writing this book because of the errors that were becoming increasingly prevalent in this church. Because the false teaching that was, was rampant. So he wrote in in response to those things, holding up Christ against the, the, the heirs that were there. Notice in chapter 2, he, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and those who have not personally seen my face. I'm, I'm worried about you. 
and I'm, I'm struggling on your behalf, I'm, I'm laboring for you, that your hearts would be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I'm writing so that you will understand Christ and you will understand how all the wisdom and, and all the knowledge is centered in him. I mean, think about it. Christ is the creator. So who knows everything about every detail of this world and, and every molecule in it? The, the best scientist of our day? No, Christ. Now, he gives knowledge to people and his grace, and we can study and discern, but all wisdom of this, of this world is found, and ultimately it is held by Christ. Regarding salvation, where, who, who knows about what we need spiritually to be right with God and to walk with God and to honor him? It is Christ. There is no element of life that is not connected to and centered on the wisdom of Christ. And so he says in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. I'm telling you, reminding you all of this about Christ so that when you hear something else... You won't be deluded. You won't be influenced. You won't be subtly drawn away. He states this very clearly in verse 8 when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Guys, there is truth in Christ, and there is a whole host of lies that this world would love for you and I and our children and our grandchildren to embrace. When we see clearly the supremacy of Christ's person and the supremacy of Christ's work, it allows us to, to, to rebut those things and it allows us to guard the truth of Christ and to, to recognize the assaults and the attacks on the, by the, the false teachings and ideologies of this world and to continue to cling to him. In Paul's day, there was Gnosticism, this, this false view that, um, that matter was basically evil and spiritual, the spirit was basically, or was good, and so anything physical didn't matter. Any sin in the body was fine. They also claimed to possess some higher knowledge, that there was some unique truth that only certain people got. Paul says, no, Christ came in his body, in a body. Christ cares about us living holy lives in this life now. And, and there's no secret knowledge. All wisdom is found in who? In Christ. And all of us have access to Christ in his word. He confronts mysticism and in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, those who, who were, uh, or legalism and, and uh, then mysticism and, and asceticism, those, those religious ideas that we can just gain some special knowledge from others or that we have to keep certain things in order to please God that are, that are beyond what God has, has required of us or, or the severe treatment of our bodies in a way that, that thinks that will deal with our sin. There continue to be various false teaching and ideologies rampant in our world. I mean, simply the, the secularism of the day, not acknowledging 
God living for this life and this world and the materialism and postmodernism of our day, the lack of truth, just the rampant errors in so many ways. It is as we understand Christ and focus on him and think carefully about his person and work that we are able to guard the truth and we are able to respond to those errors. Flip over to chapter 3, we see a, a, another response to Christ's supremacy is that we are to constantly seek the things of Christ. Chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking the things above. This is a present, active pursuit to pursue, to strive after, to obtain This is what Jesus essentially said when he said, seek first his kingdom and righteousness. One commentator says, believers seek the things above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and to living out those values. What are we living for? Are we seeking just the things of this life and this world, all the the treasures and trappings of this life that are just here for a brief time, or are we seeking that which is of Christ, his kingdom, his priorities and values? I mean, when we recognize the supremacy of Christ, we will constantly seek the things above, and we will consistently set your mind on Christ. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now he's not saying don't think about, you know, paying your bills later today or mowing your grass or, or just ignore the realities of this life. Paul is very clear elsewhere that, that that's not the way we should respond. You remember in the church at Thessalonica where there were people sitting on the roof staring, waiting for Christ to come back and ignoring everything else that was going on. And he says, don't be lazy. Go do the stuff you're supposed to do. But as we live in this world, what do we set our minds on? What do we fix our thoughts on? What is the disposition of our thinking? Well, we will set our minds on the things above, on, on Christ and on his uh, the truth of, of him and on his priorities and his word. This is an active setting of your mind. It's a choosing what you think and dwell upon. And, and why should we do that? Why should we set our minds on the things above? Well, he goes on and says, For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you'll be revealed with him in glory. The, the idea is that we are so connected now to Christ and we look forward to when we will be with him that, that that's what we are eager to dwell on. We are not citizens of this world and so we should not be consumed with all the things of this world. Again, we function here. But our citizenship is in heaven, and so we care about those things. You know, I remember when we first moved to Dallas, it's been uh, almost 20 years ago here in a, another week or two since my family moved from Missouri to Texas. And, um, you know, the, the Dallas Cowboys are a decently large deal down here, as you know. And, uh, and we were not from here, and so we're like, eh. I mean, I've heard of guys like Aikman and Emmett Smith, but I'm not a Cowboys fan. But the longer we have been here, and especially my children who have grown up here, 
the more that we have cared about those things, the more entrenched we get here. But our, you see, our, our citizenship, we have to remember, is not here. We, we, don't, we don't allow this world to, to subtly shape our thinking and for us to be consumed with all the things of this life. Again, we function here, but, but our consuming focus and passion is on Christ. Set your mind on him. We will intentionally strive to become like Christ. Paul moves from our, our pursuit of Christ and our, and our thinking about Christ to how we live in verse 5 of this chapter. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed. Verse 8, you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self and put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In verse 12, put, so as those who've been chosen of God, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Beyond all these things, verse 14, put on love. What is he saying? He's saying there's all kinds of things we are to put off <laughs> And all kinds of things we are to put on. We're to put off sin and put on righteousness in the pursuit of what? Well, of becoming more like Jesus. The response to the supremacy of Christ is to say, okay, we're going to actively and intentionally work really hard to become more like him in how we live. How do you do that? Well, he, he outlines it here for us. You put off sin. You identify those things which are contrary to the character and will of Christ. And you actively battle to stop doing those things, whether they're outward behaviors or whether they are inward act, uh, attitudes and thoughts. You are actively seeking to put those things aside. And you are renewing your mind. You are thinking differently as you put on the truth of God's word, setting your mind on things above, meditating on the truth of God's word, you start to think differently. And then you put on, you actively strive to obey Christ and put on righteousness. Again, both the attitudes, compassion, kindness, gentleness, and, and the fruit, the actions that accompany those things can't just sit here today and say, yeah, Christ is supreme, he's exalted, and I'm going to go live how I want. No, you, you respond, and I respond, intentionally striving to become like him. The key to that is the renewal of our mind, which brings us to the last one I want to point out to you, which is we regularly dwell on the word of Christ. Look at verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. What a great phrase. Let the word of Christ not just be heard by you, not, you know, sitting on a shelf near you, but let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You know, that, that idea that is throughout scripture of, of meditating on the truth of God, that it is, it is not just something that we have read as James says, we've looked at and we've gone away, but we are saturated with that truth. 
When we recognize the supremacy of Christ, he's the creator, the designer of all things. He's the sovereign Lord of the church and our savior. We want to think like he wants us to think. And so his word is to dwell within us. Notice how he, he says one way we do this, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is an intentional individual commitment of ours to meditate on the word of God, to spend time in God's word, to fill our minds with that. But it's also something that happens corporately for us together. Why do we need to be talking to one another? Why do we need to be spending time with other men? Why do we need things like this where we can hear the word of God proclaimed because we want the word of Christ to dwell within us richly? I love the second half of this verse where he says we're to be admonishing one another with what? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. (laughs) You guys think about that? When we sing together, when we gather tomorrow morning and we are singing... (laughs) We are singing first and foremost to, to the Lord. We are praising him. But you, you can do that on your own, and you should be doing that on your own. And, and, but this is something that we're called to do together, praising him together. But we're also doing what? We are admonishing and teaching one another as we sing. That, that truth of what we are singing is, is shaping our thinking even as we exalt Christ together. Now that doesn't mean you sit there singing and you stare at somebody and you think, I hope they're listening to this song that I'm singing. No, you're focused on Christ. But as we do that and that truth resonates in our minds and our hearts, we are spurred on to follow Christ. So men, Christ is supreme. He is the supreme over creation. He is separate from it, distinct from it in every way, and the source of all creation. He even now sustains that creation by the power of his word. It is all for him, for his glory. He is supreme over the church. He's the Lord of the church, the authority who has the, every right to tell the church how to function because he purchased the church with his own blood. And he is the source of all life, the source of all growth in the church. And he is supreme in salvation. We would not be saved apart from his person and work. Guys, those are powerful truths, and we will continue to unpack those together over the course of this semester. May we not simply profess those truths about Christ, not simply just be able to, uh, to pass a true-false test about the deity of Christ, but may we respond as well. That's what Paul was, was urging the church at Colossae to do, to think rightly about Jesus, not being swayed by all the false, wrong views of him and of our world, but not simply to think rightly about Jesus, but to respond to him. Responding to the Supreme One, living for his glory, hoping in him, suffering for him, proclaiming him, actively striving to be like him. May that be true of us even this week, and may we spur one another on to that end. In Christ's name, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it exalts Christ. And we pray that we would respond to him 
as we ought. Humble before him, living for him in his glory, boldly proclaiming him, eagerly suffering for him, and increasingly conforming our our lives to him as we are renewed through his word. Lord, do this not, not for our sake, but for the sake of Christ. We thank you in his name.